Welcome back to the Hopeful Activists podcast. I'm your host, Abby Thomas, and I'm not going to faff about much today. We're going to get straight into our interview with Pete Portal, which is all about being unsuccessful. To be honest, I've been struggling with feeling overwhelmed over the last couple of weeks, and I've just come back from taking a few days off to catch my breath and recover. So listening back to this interview has been such a tonic on my return. I would encourage you to listen to the whole interview and also to share it with people who'd find it helpful as Pete and I talk about how to be unsuccessful. Pete Portal, welcome to the Hopeful Activists podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Nice to meet you, Abigail. So tell me a little bit about you, Pete. Where are you in the world? Why are you where you are in the world? And what makes you tick? Yeah, thanks. So I'm from London originally. Um, and have been living in Cape Town, South Africa for the last 15 years. I moved to age 23 after graduating university. I had a short stint in kids TV in London at the BBC. (laughs) I was working um, at CBBC and desperately wanting to become a kids TV presenter until I realized that everyone else in the office had the same aspirations. So I thought, well, that's well covered then. Let me rather move to South Africa. Um, but I had uh, been on a short-term mission trip to South Africa as a student and just got really quite agitated um, and felt God's heart, God's burden, uh, a vision kind of developing in me to move back to Cape Town. And um, that's what I've done and have been here for 15 years. I met my wife, Sarah, uh, two years into that journey. We've been married 11 years and have two children, Simtandile and Luca. Brilliant. And you've just published this book called Unsuccessful, which is something that I excel at. <laughs> You'd be so surprised, honestly, the number of people who the moment they see the title, they make exactly that joke and say, oh, I got, I've got a lot to say about that. or that, That's written for me or whatever. We all have this issue with feeling unsuccessful. Yeah. Yeah, it's really spoken to me, actually. It's been really um, personally helpful. I've, re- I've really enjoyed it. So I'm going to ask you a, a slightly rude question now. So before we, we yeah. go dig into the book, what does being unsuccessful look like for you? Right. Well, the first thing to say is that when I talk about unsuccessful, the there is uh, there are brackets around the un. As in, I'm not suggesting we should all just deliberately aim to fail, and that is some kind of you know, magic bullet, kingdom answer to all the world's solutions. I really don't think that. Um, My definition, I think, of unsuccess is to recognize my unique contribution in the world uh, and who I am and what God has asked me to do and then faithfully do it, uh, focusing less on external achievements and outputs and more on internal development and the person I'm becoming rather than the things I'm able to accomplish. And so really that's my definition of unsuccess. It's, yeah, it's a kind of, um, I suppose it's a bit of a pushback to some of the self-help movement that has been kind of hijacked by a kind of anglicized pseudo-Buddhism and a bit of mindfulness and that sort of thing. And I'm, I'm like, why are people going to these books to find out what success or what flourishing looks like when we know Jesus and Jesus 
is the hope of the world. And he said, you know, the truth will set you free and a whole bunch of other things. And so, um, but Jesus's definition of success, if he was ever that direct about it, would um, not have much to do with what the world values as successful, hence unsuccessful. So you, obviously you live in South Africa. Before we move on a bit more to talk about success and success, I'm just interested in, in we, uh, we've spoken to Rennie Augustus, um, and I believe you know her. Yeah, yeah, yeah Rennie's a good yeah. friend. Um, about the impacts of apartheid still today, but I'd be interested to know from your perspective, tell me a little bit about the community you live in and what the continuing impact of apartheid is on you and also on the community where where you live. Yeah, well, I live in a community called Manenberg, which is just down the road from Mitchell's Plain, where Rene grew up. Um, it's a sort of smaller version, really, of Mitchell's Plain. And Manenberg and Mitchell's Plain, in fact, shouldn't exist. They were built by the white supremacist apartheid government in the 60s and 70s. People of color living at the foot of Table Mountain had their homes bulldozed, whole communities just um, bulldozed, and were transported like livestock to this sort of dormitory style housing 20 kilometers east of the city. And so evidently that will manifest in all sorts of different ways. Um, but today, Manenberg, despite the beauty and resilience and kind of lightness of life in many ways, um, is continually under siege from uh, gang activity, gang fights, and drug addiction, and poverty, um, and violence. And so, I mean, to give you an example, you know, I think, I can't even remember if it's gang fight at the moment, or if we're in a period of peace, which really just means ceasefire. Um, there's no peace that gangs can call. Um, and yeah, the, the drugs uh, in Manenberg are a real problem. Uh, there's Mandrax, which is a kind of um, tranquilizer with psychotic side effects that was originally used as a, a hospital tranquilizer until it was found to have uh, mental health connotations. Um, the apartheid government flooded communities like Manenberg with Mandrax back in the 60s and 70s, uh, got whole swathes of the population addicted, and still today, Mandrax is one of the drugs of choice, you know, 50, 60 years later. So just a very obvious concrete legacy of apartheid right there. But the injustice of apartheid spatial planning, of course, means that people uh, are now far away from transport links and from um, uh, jobs and all the rest of it. Uh, we're densely populated and it's really quite an inevitable collective trauma response, I think, that if my home was bulldozed and I was forcibly removed from somewhere, that I might want to defend my turf, to the ex even to the point of violence. And so we see gangs staking their turf. We see uh, people being shot and stabbed uh, for the drug trade and for turf. And... Um, in the middle of that, we sensed, uh, well, let's let's move into this community, my wife Sarah and I. She's from Cape Town, but not uh, from Manenberg. And 
just figured, you know, what people said about Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, that's being said about Manenberg day in, day out. You know, if you have Manenberg on your CV when you're looking to get a job, it automatically puts you at the bottom of the pile. And so we just figured, yeah, Jesus would probably live somewhere like Manenberg if he lived in Cape Town today, which is itself the most racially segregated city in the most economically unequal country on earth. And so there's a lot to get worked up about um, and there's a lot to pray about. Um, but the two ministries that the community that Sarah and I are part of running, which is called Tree of Life, and that's a 24-7 prayer community, are a, a home for um, young men in gangs and drugs and violent activity who want help leaving that behind and also uh, a home for abused women and their children. And so that's really what it looks like for us to seek the peace of Manenberg at the moment. There are obviously plans developing, but currently for Tree of Life community, it looks like that. It looks like those of us who have relocated into Manenberg, uh, who are white, needing to do some of, well, all the work of um, examining and exposing some of our own latent loyalties to oh, I don't know, white suburban mindsets, for example, or as for me, recognizing that as a white British male, uh, historically, we have not done uh, a whole lot of good in this nation and trying to outwork that in community uh, and discipleship. So that's a sort of very long answer to what a little bit of what life looks like. Um, and we, we love it. It's exhilarating. It's exhausting. It's exciting. Um, and it's the truest response we can come up with to the gospel of Jesus in this specific location. Yeah. And I don't want to fall into the trap either of just wanting to hear about, you know, the the difficult things, because you, you I think you do really well in the book to explain very clearly that there is so much joy and, and um, right. yeah, beautiful community. And, and in those communities where the trauma is not so obvious it's just more buried. The trauma is still very much real. It's just that where you live, the trauma is perhaps more, uh, more, more judged. Is that a fair description? Yeah. And we attach morality to it as well. So if you're a gangster and you're a drug addict, you are quote, a bad person, as opposed to, you know, I, I don't know, whatever other attachments or addictions someone in the suburbs might have. And so, so there's this kind of moral piece of judgment saying those people belong in jail. Well, Nobody ever belongs in jail, but everybody belongs in some type of kingdom family. And so that's our conviction. Yeah, that mm. we're all kind of bad people, but some of us have been saved by grace and others of us. The other thing is that gangs and drugs, whereas news headlines or those looking in will say, well, they're, they're the problem in Cape Town. The mm. problem is gangs and drugs. Well, actually know that gangs and drugs are a very imperfect solution that people have sought to medicate the pain and the agony of living in a city that still manifests the spirit of apartheid decades after the law of apartheid was dismantled. Mm. And I think you talk really well about um, pain and addiction and it being a coping mechanism for pain. But also about how um, people, whether they've experienced that sort of trauma or not, who are wanting to make a difference, need to embrace their own unraveling and deal with their own pain in their life 
how would you how would you express that in your own experience yeah well i think you know those of us who for example might have an urge to quote bring the gospel somewhere or uh help others or whatever language we might use uh you know preach the good news to the poor now that is jesus's language so we've got to be careful in completely critiquing everything but at the same time um <laughs> you know I'm not going to correct jesus here but at the same time you know jesus did model, model to us what it looks like to receive good news from the poor and to actually um center the voices of the margins um in saying that, I've just forgotten your question. What did you say? It's okay. It was a bit of a garbled question, to be honest with you, Pete. <laughs> I can't even remember what I asked. <laughs> it was about dealing with our own pain, wasn't it? That's right. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And our own unraveling. Exactly. So, so here's the thing: the, the the good news that I have received from those that the world might say are poor or whatever else is doing life in close proximity with young men coming out of gangs and drugs, who you know, step four of Narcotics Anonymous talks about doing a um, searching and fearless moral inventory of everything inside us. Now, for goodness sake, that's just a, that's just a rephrasing of Psalm 139 that says, search me, O God, and know me, see if there's any offensive way in me. And, and so that is not some niche 12-step box to tick. That is each of our duty but also invitation and means of liberation as Christians to say, search me, God, show me, highlight in me the sub-kingdom habits, beliefs, presuppositions, or prejudices that um, you want to chip away at me, uh, in me. And he uses the disarming vulnerability and the potentially more obvious pain of a young man coming out of trauma, abuse, addiction, jail, violence, gangs, to show me my own version of that. Um, so it's a great leveler. And as you say, you know, we don't want to focus on all the negatives, but all the negatives do mean that one internalizes, I think, the urgency to work through this stuff, recognizing that if we don't, in some way, we will transfer it onto others. Now, I might not shoot people with guns, but I can shoot people down with my words or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, what's my need behind that? What am I medicating from? What am I, how have I learned to cope with certain situations by doing that, et cetera? You know, I'm not in, you know, I'm no psychologist, but I think this is the invitation for all of us as disciples of Jesus to be inwardly renewed despite wasting away outwardly. Mm. And so just thinking then, um, obviously, you're in a leadership role. We want to live as Jesus lived. We want to live a life of servant, servanthood. Is it wrong to want to lead or is it just about the perspective that you have on that leadership? I don't think it's at all wrong to want to lead. I would ask anyone who put it that obviously that I want to lead, whether they have any idea what they're talking about and what you know, the connotations of such a sentence are, you know, the Bible is very clear around leaders and, uh, you know, the, the, the character that we uh, are building and all of that sort of thing. But I would also say that I think we need to examine what we mean by leadership, because I think a lot of the time we've imported it from a kind of Western boardroom template. And if I look at leadership in Tree of Life, now, 
yeah, I'm, I'm one of the core team leaders. There are five of us currently, um, you know, because we're deliberately trying not to have one leader, certainly not someone from overseas who's sort of just moved in. But but I, I think leadership from below is something that we could probably look at a little bit more. And what I mean by that is that um, in the women's house, um, there is a staff member uh, who is working with these young abused mothers who herself has been a young abused mother who speaks perfect local Afrikaans, of course, because she grew up on the same streets as these women um, and actually in some ways would have less developed hard skills around reading and writing or education than some of the women in the house. And yet, because she's 10 years clean, 10 years following Jesus, passionate in worship, and, you know, a rough diamond in a way that I am just in other ways. Um, but that but 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 if you ask any of the women in the house, you know, who they want to be like, they're not going to say me. They're going to say <laughs> this this team member. And that's a leadership from below that I think actually is worth us sitting and thinking about a little bit more, particularly those who have come from Western nations, maybe good education and you know, qualifications and um, listen to those who have something to teach us about leading from below. Yeah, and isn't even the word below, you know, so that's placing a judgment on who, where we are in the, in exactly. the hierarchy, you yeah. know, it's it's yeah. really leading from above. It's <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's, and that's the whole kingdom economics for you, isn't it? The last to first, the top or the bottom and all the rest of it. You use quite a few German words in your book, Pete. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cast back. I'm now 41. I've not done German since I think I was 12 or 13. So, so forgive me, okay? But you use this word, Geltungsbedürfnis. Geltungsbedürfnis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it wasn't so bad. No, you, you absolutely nailed it. <laughs> you just look slightly confused <laughs> for a moment. No, no, no. I, I was wondering which one you were going to come out with. <laughs> but it's this need to be recognised as valuable and worthwhile in the in the eyes of others, and you use this yeah. this yeah really profound, I think, message for activists, as you know, is our passion here at Hopeful Activists. Um, yeah, how have you have you dealt with that in yourself? Oh golly. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's such a good question. And, and I could sit here and tell you all the ways that, you know, I've dealt with it. But the reason it's in the book is because I haven't and I am trying to. You know, the entire book is really just therapy and an outworking of some of my own internal thought processes. The need for recognition, the need to be recognized, you know, uh, the need to be admired. Uh, elsewhere, I wrote about people saying, you know, Pete, he's the real deal. He's given up everything to move to Manenberg and all of this. And you think, well, that's just factually inaccurate, as well as just being a little bit overly effusive, even if it were true. But, but actually, a part of me loves that. A part of me loves that someone might think that about me. But then if you were to ask, for example, this friend I mentioned just now, the 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 female colleague who works in the women's house if you were to ask her about me she'd say oh pete the guy with the um with the, the house in gang neutral territory with two cars and you know it, you know like it's it's a very different reality of what she sees um 
And so you can kind of milk one side of the narrative if you want, or you can get super bleak and kind of um, feel very guilty about the other side of the narrative. But I think at the end of the day, um, the journey for all of us is to make sure we're not having thoughts in our own head about ourselves that are not in God's head about us. Um, and it's a, a continual exposing and humiliation of the false self um, and having a bunch of friends around you who actually don't care about things that you might think are real achievements. It's not to say people don't back you or aren't you know, cheering you on, but who just... You know, I mean, the Christian circus is a bizarre world as well, isn't it? The sort of mm. events-based discipleship that we seem to have come up with, the platforms and all of that sort of thing. And and it doesn't take a genius to learn how to milk that system. But I, I just think Manenberg keeps my feet on the ground. It's that vow of stability, nailing your feet to the ground and having a close community around you to whom you can confess and acknowledge your narcissistic tendencies or aspirations um, and silent contemplative prayer just hearing the voice of the father over you affirming you the one who I was listening to a song this morning that said the one who knows me best is the one who loves me most and so and I just thought wow that that's amazing there's no escaping God knowing everything about me and if that creates any anxiety in me, well, I haven't understood that he loves me most, more than anyone. And so this Geltungsbedürfnis thing is a charade. It's just stupid. But we fall for it day in, day out, which is why we're all addicts in recovery. You have this quote from Hans Rowling, which is, almost every activist I've ever met, it's quite a sobering quote, whether deliberately or more likely unknowingly, exaggerated the problem to which they have dedicated themselves. And I just found that such a, obviously like our passion um, at the Hopeful Activist is for activists, but it just touched a nerve, you know, like we we want to, um, it's an, again, it's another mark of significance, isn't it? What we do is really super, super important. What what would you, what comfort would you bring to, to activists and what, what advice would you bring us about, how to stay humble and yeah focused on god oh I, I, yeah i don't know i don't i think i would love to hear someone else's thoughts on that but i think from my point of view um just re recognizing that true influence isn't reserved for those with the highest number of noughts in their with their followers or the highest number of views of a podcast even or whatever true influence in in the kingdom i think is as i say recognizing what your unique contribution is to the world and then doing it faithfully i think if i'm honest one of the things i see with uh activists is a lot of burnout and bitterness and feeling unseen or the sort of lone prophet in the wilderness and i once heard um uh We'll know who I mean by Jackie Pullinger, I suppose, in, in yeah. Hong Kong. Yeah, and she once said, here's the thing, um, burnout is not a Christian phrase. And I was feeling quite burnt out and cynical at the time. So, oh, here we go, you know, but sort of <laughs> you know, on, on one level, oh, here we go, go on then, Jackie. But on my deep, like my, my kind of spirit leapt and I was like, 
I, whatever she's about to say, I need, I need to hear this because evidently someone doing the thing for 60 years has got mm. something to say. And she said, no, it can't be a Christian phrase because if we're faithfully doing what God's given us to do with the fuel he's given us to do it, then that he'll always provide us with enough fuel to do what he's asked us to do. And her point, I think, was it's often when we go away, go off doing all sorts of other things that look brilliant, like initiatives worthwhile, good traction, scalable, replicable, replicable, you know, absolutely worthwhile on one level. But if God's not asked us to do it, um, and, I, and I'm aware we can dis- discuss well, how do we know what God's asked us to do, etc. There's a whole <laughs> chapter on calling in the book as well. But um, but I think the point being, like, staying in our lane is just really important. And I think particularly in the activist-minded sphere, uh, people can take on way too many issues, end up getting swamped by it all, and then blaming God that nothing ever happened rather than saying, well, what's my unique contribution? How has he called me? And uh, what fuel has he given me to do it? And I really believe there'll always be enough. It's not to say there won't be valleys and desert seasons and all of that. But yeah, that struck me deeply. Um, And I think think we can kind of fall off the horse the other way. If, If, for example, an activist minded kind of uh, NGO or, or just person, you know, is hypercritical of a sort of mega church approach to things with, you know, the number of baptisms or the, the this or, you know, the numbers on seats or huge budgets or whatever, then what we can end up doing is kind of celebrating smallness and inefficiency and, oh, I don't know, just sort of like slightly ineffective stuff in a kind of oversteer away from things that are na- loud and self-congratulatory but that is not unsuccess in the way i mean it because then we're just not doing something that we're called to excellently and for the audience of one we're kind of doing it as an oversteer to someone else's brokenness and you know Mm. yeah (laughs) so Mm. i think there's yeah i haven't got a particularly coherent answer to that but those are some things that come to mind that's really helpful and i think yeah i guess i'm thinking about the role of the holy spirit And sometimes there is a risk for those of us who are in communities harmed by trauma, who've lived through trauma ourselves, um, who've grown up in communities um, where there is a lot of trauma, that we can, within that and within our whatever it is we feel God's called us to do, we can forget the role of the Holy Spirit, that we can become overwhelmed by the problem to the extent where we see ourselves as the solution. And yeah. yeah, I'd like to hear a little bit more about, I guess, the role of the supernatural um, in your work. Yeah. Um, well, the, the first thing to say around that is probably the role of the supernatural in our work is exponentially more significant and active than we're even aware of uh Mm. you know in oh i don't know close shaves you know i almost crashed my car this morning i was changing the song on my radio and almost crashed and like really almost crashed out of the sort of you know heartbeat flutter and all of the rest of it um i thought well 
I don't know. I, 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 I was like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe this is spirit of intimidation or this and that. I was like, or maybe you weren't concentrating, you know, or whatever. <laughs> um, so I think we can, we can over-spiritualize and we can under-spiritualize and who gets to decide what's what. But I do, I think recognizing that even the people in the room in our community, if the spirit were not at work, it just wouldn't make sense. You know, I love that line, live in such a way that God, if God didn't exist, your life would make no sense. Mm. Um, and so just by virtue of the fact that we're all in the room together in relationship for me is a seriously supernatural evidence of the Holy mm. Spirit working in us. And at the same time, you know, we believe that drugs are not, um, uh, addiction to drugs, for example, is not at its core a, a human issue. It's more of a soul issue. And, you know, we we read in Psalm twenty three of the, the the shepherd who restores our soul. He and how does he do that? Well, I, I think one of the ways is praying in tongues. We 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 say to all of the guys who come through the house, we we teach on it, we practice it. There's obviously no pressure to speak in tongues, and I'm aware not everyone does, etc. But it's been something that has has really revolutionized, I think, the way we look at drug recovery. Um, and as I say, recovery for each one of us in whatever the things that we're coming away from. And we're trying to blend a kind of inner healing prayer approach with looking at, you know, revelation from the spirit and we, um, and, and with things called freedom prayers that we pray with people, two, two, two people praying for one and, and listening to the voice of the spirit and helping them work through memories from their past and where is the Holy Spirit and all of that and all the rest of it. And at the same time, um, being trauma informed as well and, and, and recognizing that we're not qualified for all of that. And so having psychiatrists and psychologists around and that sort of thing. And at the same time, recognizing that prophecy, again, by virtue of us all being in a room together, it's a prophetic signal, prophetic sign, prophetic statement to a divided city and a divided nation, but at the same time, not losing the personal prophetic and speaking prophetic words of destiny and spiritual DNA over people. Mm. We, we have seen hearts healed and bodies healed. Uh, we've also seen uh, many people die and we have prayed for the dead to be raised and we haven't seen that yet. But I, I honestly believe that is conventional Christianity as biblical as loving your neighbor as yourself. And so we will continue to do these things, uh, knowing that on the one side of things we'll be too politically minded or too activist engaged for the kind of other side of things. And then in the same token, we'll be too Holy Spirit or supernatural or kind of heavenly minded for some of the more kind of gritty activist world. And we've kind of just, it's not resigned. I think we're just settled in the middle of that saying, but there's a third way that, as you mentioned, Abigail, like the Holy Spirit is infusing our activism. And, you know, like Paul says in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so that signs, wonders, miracles, healings of bodies, but it's also um, activism, advocacy, healing of memories becoming like him in his death, um, laying down our lives for others, basically. And there's a kind of, yeah, journey that we're on in that. And I think 
I think as a as a community as well, one can kind of yeah, a bit like a pendulum. You can swing one way or the other a little bit, and every now and then you need prophetic prayer and all of that to kind of input and just remind you, oh, don't forget about that, or you know, do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I know you've you've been really influenced by the story of Henri Nguyen. Um, and there's mm. three ideas that he shares to help us journey more closely with Jesus. It might be interesting just to talk around those. You talk about from relevance to prayer, from popularity to ministry, and from leading to being led. Yeah. Do you, do you want to just well, tell me a little bit about how those have influenced you? Yeah. I mean, the, again, the first thing to say on that is for a much better description of all of that, read Henry Nouwen's book, In the Name of Jesus. It's an absolute must read for those really anyone. Um, But from relevance to prayer, you know, uh, relevance in this day and age looks like engaging online. It looks like, like like we're talking about being seen and recognized and admired. It looks like profile, it looks like numbers. Uh, And Henry Nouwen talks about how as an academic at Harvard, he was, he was getting all that recognition as a Harvard academic, as a lecturer, as a speaker. and, And he said, but the very success that the world was applauding me for was making my soul sick. And he recognized that his own prayer life had been kind of sacrificed on the altar of relevance. And so that was, I mean, that's kind of in a sense, all there is to say about it is just a stark warning for any of us, leadership or not, quote, full-time ministry or not, that the two are basically in Nouwen's mind, quite sort of at war with each other. You know, the greater one's desire for relevance, probably the less one will find oneself praying. That's not, now that's not a rule, it's not a formula, but I've definitely seen that in my own life. And again, that it's that, it's that journey of making sure that our inner life with God always outweighs our outer life with people. So I think that's, I think that's what I got from his first point. What would you think? And, and and yeah, and he took the that sort of what the world might see as downward mobility, didn't he? And and went off to to large community, right? When no one cared about his books, anything that he could leverage for relevance and networks in Harvard, like suddenly no one could care less, mm-hmm. and that was something very healing for his soul that had grown sick with the wrong sort of success. And Larsh is a community where people live together, those who have um, physical and, and mental health needs and those who who don't. Um, and I, I know that probably chimes a little with some of you. You have lived alongside people who are going through quite profound struggles. Yeah. Do you really identify with him in that, where he talks about from popularity to ministry, you know, that really being yeah. alongside people? Yeah, exactly. Um, being alongside people like um, the journey of reciprocity with those who you know like I was using accidentally earlier and you rightly mentioned you know we talk about above or below and all of that sort of thing Um, you know a a leveling of the playing field through the gospel reciprocity uh, putting ourselves um, in in situations where we are in need those of us who maybe would be tempted to think we have the answers or we have the solutions um, or just the, the the hotline to heaven or whatever it might be. And yeah, like that, that's not honestly the road to popularity and being known and all the rest of it. It's, <laughs> it's, it's quite the opposite. 
And that leads from from leading to being led sort of ties into that, doesn't it? To actually uh, acknowledging that we don't have the answers more often yeah. than not. Yeah, you know, I was, I was chatting to someone the other day who, you know, you know, you know, a very well known Christian leader, and he said to me, the number of mega church pastors I've met who are brilliant at their jobs, but really quite questionable human beings. And I thought, wow, that's an interesting one. And the point being, you know, that the, the whole like this whole kind of upward journey of leadership thing can. And he also said they've all got adrenal fatigue as well. And they all meet up and talk about their adrenal fatigue. But they have to keep going to keep the show on the road. And in order to. What's, what's adrenal fatigue? That's where your adrenal glands basically burn out. And you just you just you're just operating out of burnout, basically. Mm. Um, and. You know, but it's the Geltungsbedürfnis, the need to be seen and recognized in others. It's relevance, it's popularity. Um, and these are not awful people. These are just people who maybe um, have got caught up in the hamster wheel. Um, although actually his point was some of them are questionable character-wise. You know, like I was, ch- I was chatting to someone else the other day and we we're talking about church leadership and he said that he was in a large denomination previously. He's not anymore. He, he said... Uh, you know, it, it was all these gifts that were celebrated. And if you had, you know, three or four various gifts, which was the gift of the gab, basically you could do a sort of convincing offering preach. You could re- read and teach scripture and you're probably an extrovert. Then, you know, that that's you set, go plant a church. And and we were just lamenting the fact that actually it's, you know, all the, all the biblical criteria, there's nothing really to do with gifting as much as it has to do with character. And so I said, actually, I wonder if a better uh, kind of leadership pathway might be just someone follows you around with a stick for a week and just pokes you and just sees how patient or impatient you are and how angry you get, and you know, the cuss words that come out of your mouth and just how you deal with it. You know, that's probably actually more biblical in some ways than giving a convincing offering preach. Yeah, in most ways, I would say. (laughs) Well, right. Everybody, yeah. <laughs> yeah what what a brilliant example so let's just come into land then with just the practical steps at the end of your book um you've got some excellent diagrams i was very surprised when i oh, turned the page very much. <laughs> oh good and they made sense ish did they yeah it did make sense shout out to my friend jake who made them i i wouldn't know how to go about that well just explain some of the terms to me so, so you talk about contemplation and then you use the words revivalism and activism. So just talk us through those steps. Yeah, so so the diagrams really came out of a kind of mind map I was just doodling in my book around Philippians 3.10. And that, you know, Paul, who the Apostle Paul, who by all intents and purposes knew a lot about uh, what it means to know Christ and seemed to give us two keys. And a, a, you know, again, like saying two keys is not, there are loads of other keys, but in that verse, there are two keys he mentions. Mm-hmm. One is uh, the power of the resurrection of Jesus. Well, that is a miracle. That's wonder-working power. That is the supernatural at its most supernatural in some senses. And so I, I split up the verse and go, okay, so what does it look like, the power of Jesus' resurrection? Well, it looks like all the things that we would associate on the plus side with that a charismatic end of theology, which is signs, wonders, healings, 
um, deliverance, demonic deliverance, um, and all that sort of thing. That's that. That's what I kind of essentially box as power of his resurrection. Then on the flip side, contemplation also leads us to an earthly mindedness as opposed to a heavenly mindedness. And the earthly mindedness, then, you know, you just need to read the news to begin to lament for the state of the world and that it isn't as it should be. And so then next world focused evangelism is, I think, um, balanced with this world focused advocacy. I think um, demonic deliverance from someone plagued by demons um, also needs to be balanced with uh, deliverance from systems of oppression and injustice. And equally, I think the healing of bones and bodies uh, and physical healing needs to be balanced with a collective healing of memories. And the two are brought together in the prophetic, the personal prophetic, which might be more uh, uh, recognized in the revivalism stream of things, which is, as I say, someone maybe giving you a word of knowledge or destiny or kind of, you know, we talk about reading my mail. Oh, this, this stranger came up to me and they just read my mail. They knew everything about me. Well, that's the personal prophetic. We mustn't lose that because that fuels the systemic prophetic, which is speaking truth to power and uh, being exemplars of the polytuma, this kind of outpost. Colony is a bad word because it's loaded, but you get what I mean when I say it. it's sort of outpost of heaven on earth. Um, and I think for me where activism goes wrong is that it seeks to be systemically prophetic without the undercurrent of the personal prophetic fueling it. Um, and I think where revivalism goes wrong is that so often it's about me my jesus my destiny my prophecies over my life my whatever and fails to engage with systems i mean to give an example i i heard of a a, a friend of a friend of a friend at a very large very charismatic church and they said they couldn't believe it when they heard this person say to them god gave them a word for the year and they said, oh, what's that? And they said, the word was spend. And they thought, okay. And so then they went out and bought shed loads of trainers and clothes and a Tesla because they believed that this was in obedience to what God was saying to them. Now, on one sense, fair play. If, if you honestly think God is saying just spend all your money on yourself, <laughs> then they, they were really faithful and obedient. But the idea that we might think the word spend wouldn't mean spend yourself on behalf of the hungry, the poor and the oppressed tells us a lot about the theological framework we're operating within. And, you know, so that that's a, a slightly garbled explanation of the diagrams, which probably makes no sense unless you've got them in front of you. I think, no, I think you've brought us a really helpful challenge, actually, as activist Pete. I think, yeah, I think it's a really great, great place to end. And I really appreciate you sharing so many of your um, thoughts and experiences with us. Great to be with you, Abigail. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much to Pete Portal. I hope you found that as helpful as I did. You can find the link to buy the book in the show notes attached, of course, or on our social media feeds. Pete also said it's great if people can leave a review if you like the book. So let's help him make his book about being unsuccessful, (laughs) very successful. 
Thanks for joining me again at the Hopeful Activist podcast. We'll be back in three weeks with an interview with Ash Barker about how change happens. In the meantime, I hope and pray that you have the right kind of unsuccessful week as you walk with Jesus.